All right, there we go. That'll work better. Uh, if you would, turn your Bible to Ezra chapter 1, and we're going to be looking into chapter 2 tonight, so we continue our study through, uh, through the book of Ezra and then Nehemiah, and Ezra and Nehemiah for most of uh, history have been regarded as one book anyway, so we're just going to continue that process. Hopefully you received the handout booklet that has the picture uh, on the front there, and, and for tonight's service, again, like Jaron said, if you look at the back of that booklet, the one that has our sermon series logo on the front and then our fall 21 schedule on the back, scattered around in the different bulletin holders uh, are some cards that you can take home for the fall 2021 schedule. So hopefully if you look in these bulletin holders on the walls as you exit, you'll find one of those cards. You can hang that on the, uh, on the fridge. And we certainly don't intend to cause any more confusion than we already do, but when it comes to Sunday night schedule, just know, unless it's a major holiday or some other church event going on, we're going to be here at, at 5 o'clock. So next week, give or take whether Labor Day is a major holiday or not, <laughs> we're not going to be meeting next week on Sunday night. Uh, got some things going with my family. I know other people are out that weekend, but we'll be right back at it on Sunday night the 12th doing some hymns short Bible study, and then Sunday night the 12th, we're going to have a chance to talk some more about some of these longer range plans that we're working on for our church family. So hopefully Sunday night the 12th, we'll have a boatload of people back here with us on that night to talk about some of those things. But you can take this as a schedule. You can grab a schedule off the wall when you leave. Um, and if there is any confusion, just send Jaren a text message and he'll, or call him and he'll, he'll clear up all the confusion for you. So uh, yeah, that's where we are. Tonight, I normally would not title a Sunday night message, but the pilgrimage of pots, pans, and people seemed too good, so I had to write it on there for you. So if you open up your little booklet, tonight is going to be about the pilgrimage of pots, pans, and people as we talk about this return from exile. Here's what I want to propose before you tonight as kind of a question, a thought. And then I'm going to try to weave a lot of Amanda and I's New Orleans story, Hurricane Katrina's story, into the, into the sermon tonight because I think there's a lot of uh, connections. And what we want to think about is how did God use the experience of exile and especially the people's return from exile to prepare them for what he had next? Because as the people are coming out of exile— He's using even the process of exile and returning from exile to prepare them for what's to come. And so as we see the way this return is working, I want us specifically to think about how was God shaping his people? How was he preparing them for all that he had for them in, in the days ahead? Ezra chapter 1, let's pick up, well, let's just go ahead and pick up back in verse 2. It doesn't hurt to reread these ideas again. So Ezra chapter 1 Let's pick up in verse 2. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdom of the earth, kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides free will offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. Verse 5, 
Then rose up the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin, and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. And all who were about them aided them with vessels of silver, with gold, with goods, with beasts, and with costly wares besides all that was freely offered. Cyrus the king also brought out the vessels of the house of the Lord that Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and placed in the house of his gods. Cyrus, king of Persia, brought these out in the charge of Mithridath, the treasurer, who counted them out to Sheshbazar, the prince of Judah. And this was the number of them, 30 basins of gold, 1,000 basins of silver, 29 censers, 30 bowls of gold, 410 bowls of silver, and 1,000 other vessels. All the vessels of gold and of silver were 5,400. And these did Sheshbazar bring up when the exiles were brought up from Babylonia to Jerusalem. Chapter 2, verse 1. Now these were the people of the province who came up out of the captivity of those exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried captive to Babylonia. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his own town. They came with Zerubbabel, Jeshua, Nehemiah, Sariah, Reliah, Mordecai, Bilshan, Mizpar, Bigvi, Rehum, and Bana. And if you think that was bad, we could then go from verse 3 all the way down, ver- really names going all the way through about verse 56, and then some more names and some more numbers. But we're going to stop there with the word of the Lord, and uh, we'll explain the rest of chapter 2 because there's a lot of names and a lot of numbers in, in chapter 2. But this is the word of the Lord. Okay, what do we learn from these chapters. Interesting, there at the end of chapter 1, how it's recounted all these objects that are going to be returned to Jerusalem. Why do these objects matter? Why do the pots and pans and the number of the pots and pans at the end of chapter 1 matter? Well, these items were taken out of the temple when the temple was destroyed, and they were taken to Babylon And we know from Daniel chapter 5 that these holy instruments from the temple were used by Belshazzar for his parties. I mean, you think about something being defiled. Here is an object that was used in the temple of the Lord, and it's used for this evil pagan party. Uh, Chapter 5 of Daniel, it's over there on the right side of your, your note sheet, if when you're opened up like a booklet, Daniel 5, 1 through 4, King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought, that the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem. And the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine, and they praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. It just kind of makes you sick to your stomach to think about that. Here are these objects of the Lord that were used in the temple, and they're used in these such evil pagan ways in Babylon. When these items are being returned to the promised land, it's a sign that God is purifying the people, that he is returning them, he is preparing them for the temple to be rebuilt, that he cares even about the instruments that are used. And I think 
Because we could think to ourselves, why not just build new ones, Lord? Like, why not just give them new pots and pans? Why, why take these? And it has to have something to do with the idea of redemption. That here are these pots and pans that have been defiled, and yet the Lord won't leave them behind. That he is going to bring them back. And that picture of them being brought back is a picture that the Lord is also not going to leave behind his defiled people. That he is going to redeem them and bring them back. That he is the God even of the pots and the pans. <laughs> that he is the God who redeems all things for his purposes. And when you look in the New Testament, you start to see these images of the new heaven and the new earth and the way that God makes all things new, that he redeems all of his creation for his purposes. And so here he's bringing back these pots and pans. Um, I'm going to weave in, like I said, some of our New Orleans story. Uh, and, and when I think about pots and pans and Hurricane Katrina, here's, here's the story I think of. So Saturday, Friday night, Amanda and I, this had been Friday early, Friday, August the 26th of 2005, we were at the Student Recreation Center there at New Orleans Seminary and playing volleyball with some friends, and Hurricane Katrina was uh, uh, supposed to go over toward Pensacola, so nobody in New Orleans was particularly concerned, so we went to bed Friday night. We woke up Saturday morning, and one of the more dramatic shifts of a hurricane track forecast had happened, and that thing shifted all the way west toward New Orleans, and they're talking to people about getting out, getting out of town. So Amanda starts to pack some things up for us, you know, for us to be gone for a couple of days. Uh, and I drove to the uh, gas station and, and put some gas, well, waited a really long time in the line, and then put some gas in the car and went back, and we put some things in the car. We would have packed a lot more pots and pans had we known what was going to happen, uh, but we just packed a few things there, and to Amanda's credit, she packed a couple of crucial documents, and, and we got in the car and, and drove over to uh, Texas and stayed with aunt and uncle there, saw everything that happened. Uh, you know, even with Ida, isn't all the way through New Orleans right now. The problem with Katrina is Katrina came through, and we thought everything was okay, and then we started to see the images of, of the levees breaking and everything happening. And we were sitting there at my aunt and uncle's house, and they showed a rescue happening off a top of a building, and there was our apartment complex on TV sitting next door. We lived on the first floor, and you couldn't see the first floor. Uh, and so that was kind of our moment that we realized, you know that duct tape we put around the bottom of the door? probably didn't hold. It probably didn't matter as the water went surging through the windows. The, the duct tape and putting everything in the top of cabinets and on top of beds probably didn't matter. So we never actually went back to that particular apartment. Um, they, they gave a very short amount of time that you could go in and get stuff. For us, it, you know, it didn't, didn't really matter a whole lot at that point because everything had been underwater for weeks because of how long that water sat there. What does it have to do with pots and pans? Here's the interesting thing. One of our friends went back into the apartment complex and took some pictures of the apartment for us, which turned out to be really meaningful. We were glad to have, glad to have those pictures. Took a picture of the kitchen. So the fridge in our little apartment had made its way to the living room. So the fridge is sitting in the middle of the living room. Right there on the counter is a Tupperware with some food that had been given to us by a friend before we left, and that silly Tupperware was still there on the counter. Water does crazy things when it comes in to, to a, on a situation like that. Put the fridge 
in the living room and left the Tupperware right there on the counter. So we could have returned with that Tupperware, but we didn't. I have no idea how that Tupperware floated around and ended up right where it started. It is one of the craziest pictures I've ever seen in my life. God cares even about the little things, even about the Tupperware and the pots and pans that are being returned. Now, not just the pots and pans, he definitely cares about the people that he is shaping in this process. And what I want you to see through these scriptures tonight is specifically how God was shaping his people through this experience. Go back to chapter 1, verse 4, and let's look at a couple of key words here. Chapter 1, verse 4, let's look at a, at a word. It says, And let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place. I'm reading from the English Standard Version, ESV, it says, let each survivor. Does anyone's translation have a different word other than survivor early in verse 4? Is it all survivor? Is that what they go with there? Interesting. Okay. I was curious what would be there. I, I didn't have time this afternoon to look at it. Um, that is the word in the Old Testament for the word remnant or something that is left behind, or something that remains. So in chapter 1, verse 4 of Ezra, when it says, and let each survivor, it's the famous word in the Old Testament for a remnant. This is the idea throughout the prophets in the Old Testament, that no matter how bad things get, God will always have a remnant. <laughs> you find these stories throughout the Old Testament where it feels like everything is evil and everything is falling apart, and yet in the middle of that evil and chaos, God preserves a remnant and then draws that remnant out and he will use them for his plans in the days ahead. And that proves true even to today. If we're not careful, we begin to equate the success of God's plans and providence and God's kingdom with large numbers. Except in scripture, that often does not work that way. You think about the work that Jesus did. You think about how God works throughout scriptures. God is always in the process of preserving a remnant who are dedicated to him. Uh, remnants are defined by a couple of things. Remnants are defined by intense, fervent prayer. Remnants are defined by what we're going to call holy discontent. Not bitterness, but a feeling that things just aren't as they should be, like they're not content with things in the world. And remnants are also defined by purity, holiness, a desire to honor the Lord in, in our lives. And so when you think about what God does, is you can have a situation where things are bad in Babylon. Things are falling apart, and God is always preserving his people, those who are dedicated to prayer, those who are not okay with the, things are, the way things are, those who are committed to holiness and want to pursue holiness, and it may be three people, <laughs> it may be 12 people, it may be 70 people, 100 people, whatever the case might be, the effectiveness of that group is not based on how many there are, it's based on the fact that they are dedicated to the Lord. And this is something we have to think about in our own country, our own world, what does it mean for God to preserve a remnant? What does, God, what does it mean for God to call a group of people together? Because when God does his work among a group of people, 
he usually doesn't do it with everybody at the same time. When God does his work among a group of people, he usually doesn't do it among everybody at the same time. He, he draws up a remnant, and then through that remnant, he brings renewal to the people around. He, he preserves a remnant and then replaces them to another place and carries forward his work there. So when you see a situation where it doesn't seem like God's kingdom is growing the way you think it should, or it doesn't seem like God's plans are moving together the way you think they should, remember God works through remnants. Remember God always has people devoted to prayer has people who aren't satisfied living for this world, people who want to live lives of holiness. And as he preserves and calls out those remnants, that's when he does this good work. And so here you have this idea of survivor, you have this idea of remnant throughout scripture. And so God sends his people into exile, and then he draws out this remnant who he's going to use in his plans for his purposes. Another word there in verse four that I want you to key in on. So first is the word survivor or the word remnant. The second word I would show you there is the word sojourn. Um, let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns. Any of the translations do something different with that word other than sojourns? Dwells? Oh, interesting, okay. What else do you have? Dwells? Lives? Okay. Yeah, so it's a word that, that can mean dwell, but not dwell there necessarily as a permanent citizen. Uh, this is the famous word from Abraham that Abraham was sent out as a sojourner. He was sent out one who would dwell not in houses that were permanent, but in tents. So hold your place there, Ezra 1, and go over to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11 is where we find this idea of sojourning, what God wants to do uh, with his people when he takes them to different places, how we're supposed to live as the people of God. Um, we're going to go to Hebrews chapter 11 here to get this idea of, uh, to get this idea of sojourning. And I think the Abraham story starts in verse 8 of Hebrews chapter 11. So by faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, were born descendants, as many as the stars of heaven, and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. All throughout Scripture, you find this theme that God places us in this world to live here as his people, even recognizing this world as it stands is not our final home. We live as sojourners. We live as exiles, as we find in, in the New Testament. I don't know if you've ever found yourself living in a situation where you were 
you were having to live in a place that wasn't truly your home at that time. You were displaced for some reason. So, back to Katrina, back to 2005. Uh, Amanda and I had been married about 10 months when Katrina hit, so we lost all of our toasters and blenders and <laughs> wedding presents uh, and things like that. My aunt and uncle were in Texas. They lived down in a place called Corsicana, kind of south, southeast of Dallas a little bit, so we were, we were down there. There's our apartment on TV. Can't see the first floor. We live on the first floor. So we're like, okay, we're going to have to figure out what to do. So we come back to Oklahoma. We live a week at my parents, a week at her parents, a week at my parents, Headed back to her parents a week and realizing this is not going to work. This is not going to work for a whole lot of reasons, but this is definitely not going to work. And so we're feeling displaced, unsure, unsure where to go. Henderson Hills Baptist Church in Edmond, up there on I-35, calls us and says, hey, we'd love to help a family affected by Hurricane Katrina. You guys come here. We'll give you a place to live, an apartment. We'll make up a spot for you on staff. You can do your online school, whatever. So we move up there, and they give us an apartment, and we're able to be up there, even realizing that's still not ultimately going to be our final landing place, but it was a place that we could be for six or seven months until we were able to return back, back to New Orleans. In that process of being displaced, of not having a home base, it really changes the way you think about possessions. It changes the way you think about having a home. It changes the way you think about how you live your life when you're in this situation that you don't have a strong, a strong foundation, a strong base. And for us, early in marriage, it was also particularly formative because here we are trying to get our feet on the ground as a couple and life feels very displaced. God takes his people throughout scripture on these sojourns. He, he takes his people on these trips to remind them this world is not ultimately your home. That in many ways you are passing by. You're to, you're to live here as my people, but not to feel like this is your final home, your final. I'm preparing another place for you, ultimately a place where heaven and earth will come together. And so as you think about what exile does to the people of God, they know what it is like to be taken from their home, and they know what it's like to be returned. And I think when they return, they're going to live very differently because of that experience. So that's a key word that I want you to pick up here. Number three on your notes about a theology of this long list of names, we're kind of down there to point B, point three. So we're a remnant. We're sojourners. We're people who experience God's covenant purposes, the way that God remains faithful to his promises. And one thing that a commentator pointed out here that I thought was really interesting, if you go over to verse two of chapter two, so if you go over to Ezra, Ezra chapter 2, verse 2, you will find there a list of 11 names. And if you add to that list Sheshabar, who's a key figure in this, though a hard name to say, you get 12. Why does 12 matter particularly there? Why is it important that they have 12 leaders? Well, you think about the people of Israel who are defined by 12 leaders, 12 tribes, 12 who would come. So we have Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and then the 12 sons of Jacob who are going to form, in many ways, the people of Israel. Even as God returns them from exile, he is establishing 12 over them who are going to be a part of this return. And as they return, you see God's covenant promises that he made to Abraham being fulfilled, that he hasn't abandoned his people. Even when they go through exile, God does not abandon his people. He's bringing them back. He's preparing them. Genesis chapter 22, that's on the right side of your, your note sheet there. Genesis chapter 22, verses 17 and 18. 
I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore, and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. God made these promises to Abraham, and even when they go into exile, they're not forgotten. God is bringing them back as his people. Number four is when God sends his people into exile and brings them back, he gives them big jobs and small jobs. <laughs> so you look at the listing of the names, and you go down there to verse 36, and you see in chapter 2, verse 36, that the priests are mentioned. And then you see in verse 40 that the Levites are mentioned. And then in verse 42, the gatekeepers are mentioned. And then in verse 43, the temple servants that are mentioned. Now, if you see a pattern developing, in many ways you are going from more important to less important. You're, you're kind of making a, a trip down, priests, Levites, gatekeepers, temple servants. You go over to 55, verse 55 the sons of Solomon's servants. And then you find in verse 59 a really interesting group here. A group who it says they could not prove their father's houses or their descent, whether they belong to Israel. In verse 62, these sought their registration among those enrolled in the genealogies, but they were not found there, and so they were actually excluded from the priesthood as unclean. The governor told them that they were not to partake of the most holy food until there should be a priest to consult. So you have a group of people who can't find their birth certificate. <laughs> they, or they can't find the family Bible that has the family genealogy. Or some of you have done the genealogy work in, in your family to trace it back uh, a long way. And they can't do that. And so even their status is lower than these gatekeepers and servants. But guess what? they're still included. Even though they're not a part of the inner priestly circle, even though they're not involved in those ways, they're still included in what's going on here. And get down to verse 64, the whole assembly together was 42,360. And then it mentions male and female servants, male and female seniors, sorry to the vocalists that you get so far down on the list, you're just above the horses. Um, here for the, uh, for the musicians. They make it just in above the horses, the mules, the camels, and the donkeys. Even the animals are included here in this reckoning of who is going to be a part of this work. In the people of God, there are quote-unquote bigger jobs and quote-unquote lower jobs, and there's even the animals that come along and, and do the work, and yet it's all part of God's plan. He is involving all of these in the return from exile because all of them matter. Number five, God's people, when they return from exile, are defined by generosity. Verse 68, Ezra 2, verse 68. Some of the heads of families, when they came to the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem, made free will, free will offerings. So this is above and beyond giving. This is beyond the tithe. This is free will offerings for the house of God to erect it on its site. According to their ability, they gave to the treasury of the work 61,000 derricks of gold, 5,000 minas of silver, and 100 priest 
garments. Now, an interesting word there at the beginning of verse 68 is the word some gave, uh, which to me implies not everybody gave. Why? Like, why would people be returned from exile and not everybody give? Uh, Some of it could have been the fact that they started to think, oh my goodness, I'm going to need this money to work on my own return, my own property, to take care of my own family. I can't be giving to the people of God when I've got all these other needs around me. And and we see the danger in that thinking, (laughs) that this return from exile, why was it possible? Because God had made it possible. And he had given them everything they needed to return from exile. And the hope would be that in the overflow of God's grace toward them, they would then be generous in the work of God. This idea is reflected in your New Testament in in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, how richly God has poured out his grace upon us, and in response, we want to be cheerful, joyful givers. We want to give of the grace that's been given to us. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 16, which I put on your notes there. 1 Corinthians 16, 2. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper. People who are involved in exile and people who return from exile learn the importance of generosity. Uh, Amanda and I experienced this in overwhelming ways. Um, and I realized that we were fortunate in a way that not, not everybody was, but even in losing all those things through, through the hurricane and coming back and trying to get back on our feet, people generously replaced those toasters <laughs> and replaced uh, those blenders and, and cared for us during that time. And, and in many ways, when you lose a bunch of stuff, you hate to replace it with everything, and so you're a little more careful about that. But just the generosity of people, I will tell you, and, and you all have experienced this because of our tornadoes uh, in this area, sometimes people and their desire to be generous, give you everything that they found in a back closet. (laughs) And so they, in an attempt to be generous, clean out their closets and put them on top of you. Um, Just remember in the days ahead, as we have a chance to give to people and we care for people in South Louisiana, maybe not dumping our leftovers on everybody else, like there's a good way to give and and a bad way to give. Uh, And when you're on the receiving end of that, you sure don't want to be petty. You, you want to be thankful for, for whatever you get, but you get yourself in some, some strange situations there. And so we want to give generously. We want to give above and beyond. We want to care for people in those times, but we want to do it in a way that, that honors the people who are going to receive those things. And you guys know when you've been through a disaster and you're on the receiving end, you feel so humbled anyway and, and so strange in knowing how to receive these gifts that come in. But I do think there's something about being sent into exile that does cause you to want to be more generous, that you want to overflow because you see the value of what God has given you, and you want to be involved in in the work of the Lord. And so as people who come back from exile, we want to be generous. Final thing, let's wrap up with this. Even as they come back into exile, they're going to spread out to their different areas, but there's still going to be a unity to the people. Verse 70. Now the priest, the Levites, some of the people... The seniors, the gatekeepers, the temple servants, they lived in their towns, in the towns that they were given. And all the rest of Israel went to their own towns. And then in chapter 3, verse 1, when the seventh month came and the children of Israel were in their towns, the people gathered as one man to Jerusalem. So they come back into the land, 
They disperse to their own towns, their own areas they're going to live, and then there are times they come back together because at the end of the day, they're one people of God who are unified because of what God has done in their lives. There is something about going through a disaster or being sent into exile that gives you a sense of camaraderie with other people who have gone through those type of situations. Now, not everyone's circumstances are exactly the same, but when you can say a little bit, I know what that feels like, I know what it is to go through that, and to experience that with somebody else, it gives you a shared connection that you wouldn't have otherwise. What is our shared connection? It's that every one of us was in need of salvation. Every one of us was in the exile of sin. Every one of us was separated from God. And every one of us has the story that we were rescued by Jesus. And so our unity as the people of God is based on that shared experience of salvation through Jesus. We're going to live in different places. We're going to have different stories. But we come back together as those who have been saved by Jesus. That, at the end of the day, is what it means to be the people of God who live as a remnant, who live as sojourners, who live as God's covenant people, who want to be generous because we've been saved by Jesus. Let me pray with us. Father, we thank you for uh, these portions of Scripture that seem so strange when we first encountered them, just long list of names and numbers. But these long lists of names and numbers and animals and pots and pans, all of it represents part of your plan, your purposes. And so God, remind us tonight that no matter what our experiences in life have been like, no matter how many natural disasters we've been through, no matter how many difficult circumstances we've faced, every one of us can have the same shared experience of having been rescued by Jesus. He is the one who binds us together in unity. And when we go out of this place to our own homes in a few minutes, we go out as those who have the shared hope in Jesus. And remind us of that tonight. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.